Okay, so Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 27, picking up from last week. And they came again to Jerusalem, that's Jesus and his disciples. And as he, Jesus, was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for uh, they all held that John was really a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent them to another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another to him and uh, him they killed. And with many others, some they beat and some they killed. And he had still another, a beloved son. And finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those ten said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him outside of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them, and so left him and went away. All right, go ahead and have a seat. Let's pray. We'll jump into our study together this morning. Father, thank you for uh, the privilege to be back again this week. And even as we wrap up this uh, section of Mark and wrap up uh, the year here in Sunday School, thank you for the opportunity we've had to study Mark's gospel, um, the way that it has uh, set forth the true and uh, powerful nature of Jesus. And today is another uh, opportunity for us to come face-to-face with the authority of Jesus and what that actually means for our lives. So I pray that uh, you would humble our students, that you would help them to see themselves where necessary in this passage, uh, and know uh, how they need to respond as a result of what they learn here this morning. So uh, we ask for your favor and your blessing on our time now. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning I'm going to actually begin by uh, playing a video, uh, a commercial actually from years ago that uh, became one of my favorite commercials at the time. Uh, and I think it has some, <laughs> it's a, a nice illustration for, for what we're going to look at here this morning. So let me, uh, let me play that for you and we'll make some comments about it here. Not today. 
for those of you who don't know who that is, that's, uh, that is Dikembe Mutombo. So Dikembe Mutombo played in the NBA for several years. He is uh, the number two all-time in what are called block shots or what are now called rejections in uh, NBA history, over 3,000 of them. Uh, and one of the things that was always uh, thought about uh, Dikembe was uh, his... Uh, kind of playful attitude that he would have whenever he would uh, block a shot. Namely, what you see here in this uh, picture, the famous finger wag to them that says, nope, not today, not today. There's obviously all kinds of rejections beyond just what you get in basketball. Uh, right now in our house, one of the most famous rejections that we have uh, by our oldest daughter is with fruit. She has become incredibly picky with fruit. Uh, the slightest little... Uh, imperfection on any fruit will mean that the whole fruit is rendered useless and she will not eat it. It gets rejected. Uh, some of you have experienced the rejection that comes through uh, social media, perhaps. Uh, somebody sends a friend request or a request to uh, follow you or something and they deny you, right? The hurt. The hurt. Well, our text this morning is all about rejection, but about a rejection of something that is far more significant than block shots or fruit or uh, social media following. Uh, it, it is something that has obviously greater weight and we would say uh, eternal significance behind it. It gets to the heart of this question, why should I listen to Jesus? And that's an important question to ask this morning. Why should I listen to Jesus? Why should I embrace his authority that he claims to have over my life? It's the very question being asked by the religious leaders in this account of Jesus. And no doubt it's a question that some of you have wrestled with or maybe are currently wrestling with in your own life. Uh, no matter how you have or haven't answered that question already, this text is here to teach us this morning that Jesus will reject those who reject his authority. Jesus will reject those who ultimately reject his authority over their life. Uh, authority has been a big theme that we've come across time and time again in Mark's gospel uh, this is the point of interest and controversy early on in the gospel. In fact, uh, if you were in first service this morning or if you're going to be in first service after this, uh, you're going to be reminded of that with uh, Jesus and his authority. He was one who taught with authority, and that was different from that of the leaders. This authority had power unlike anything people had ever seen. And now for the religious leaders, it has reached uh, a climax. It's kind of reached a breaking point, we could call it. Here's Jesus showing up on their home turf, the temple, and taking charge, acting like he is the one who is the top dog. He is the one who has ownership of everything. He's entering the temple. He's clearing it out. He's reorganizing things. He's welcoming new people into it. Matthew's gospel says he's welcoming in the, the crippled and the lame and the poor. He's welcoming in people that were ostracized before this, right? And he's teaching them. All of this is happening, and he's the one orchestrating it. And all the while, the religious leaders are standing to the side, and they're asking themselves, who does this guy think he is? 
What gives him the right to step in here and do our job? To take control from us? Why should I listen to Jesus? It's a good question. So let's look at this account in two stages. First of all, let's look at the authority of Jesus challenged in verses 27 to 30. In verse 27, Jesus returns, uh, we could say, to the scene of his own crime from the previous day. So if you were here last week, you know that what Jesus had just done the previous day was he had gone in. He had seen all the wickedness that was happening in the temple, and he starts cleaning house, right? He, he throws over the tables. He, he tosses people out who were uh, abusing and manipulating other people for all this gain, So it's most likely Tuesday of the final week of his life at this point, and he takes up residence in the temple where the day's showdown is just about to begin. And this showdown, uh, by the way, it's going to be hard because we're going to break this up over, (laughs) we're going to be going into this to next month, but this showdown goes all the way through the end of chapter 12, right? So it's going to seem like it's a long time, but this is all happening on one day that Jesus and these religious leaders are kind of having a back and forth battle with one another. Multiple rounds of questions and answers and traps that they're trying to set for Jesus. And all begins in verse 27 with the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. So notice it mentions those three groups of people that are here that day. Uh, these are what you would call the top dogs, right? These are the, 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 the highest of the high, the most important of any of the people uh, spiritually leading the nation of Israel. So if you think about like a church, this is your pastors, your elders, and your ministry staff. They're all there. You think about your school, this is your principals, your school board, and your superintendent. So these are not the people to be messing around with from uh, a human standpoint, and here they come to Jesus after everything that just happened the previous day. And now Jesus is kind of waltzing around in the temple, teaching people and kind of acting like he owns the place. And they are asking him, by what authority do you do these things? Their concern is not so much what Jesus has done, but who gives them the right to do so. That's the bigger question. Jesus does what's common among teachers in this time. He responds to their question with a question, right? Counter question. Uh, sometimes you might do this in uh, your, your life today. Somebody asks you a question and your, your way of responding to them is by asking a question back. And that actually was a very common uh, form of dialogue and teaching technique back in this day. And Jesus uh, basically kind of gives them an ultimatum here. He says, listen, I'll answer your question so long as you can answer mine. And it's kind of a, a, an all-or-nothing or type of question. Jesus said to them, uh, uh, answer me this, right? Was the baptism, verse 30, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? That's all you have to do. Answer that question, and I'm more than happy to answer yours. <laughs> it's an all-or-nothing type of question. There's, notice that there's no... Uh, all of the above? No, none of the above? Uh, it's not a true or false question. I don't know if you were like me. Sometimes on true-false questions on tests back in the day, you would like maybe write it so that it looks like it could be a T or an F, right? Did anybody else ever done that? Honesty? Yep, I see some head shaking. You know what I'm talking about. Right? None of that is an option. It's an all or nothing. Which is it? It's one or the other. 
Later verses are going to show that this was what we call a no-win question. They lose no matter how they answer this question. And so what do they do? They, they, they huddle up, right? So they call each other together. They, they get into their huddle. They take a knee, and they're, they're like, okay, how do you want to answer this question? And at first glance, this looks and feels like, uh, on Jesus' part, it feels like a little bit of a, a weird, evasive maneuvering here, right? Because you're just like, why is he asking them a question about John the Baptist? Like, what? It feels like that has zero relevance to the question that they just asked him. Is this just some uh, diversion tactic? Like when people are about to go into a race with each other and the other person says, oh, your shoe's untied, and then they take off, Right? kind of feels like that in some ways and you think to yourself okay well so jesus throws like some random riddle at them but i think there's a stronger connection with this question than we realize or it might look on the surface his question actually has a lot to do with the basis of his authority after all that's what they want to know right what gives you the authority to do these things and here's why the decision that they make about John the Baptist is ultimately a decision that they're making about Jesus. How they answer this question about John the Baptist is actually a reflection of how they respond to the authority of Jesus. And some of you are like, I don't get it. Why is that the case? Well, because, again, if you were in first service or if you're going to be in second service, we learn that John baptized Jesus and pointed to Jesus as his successor. If they affirm John as a messenger from God, then they must affirm the authority that he gave to Jesus, right? I mean, if John, after all, uh, was supportive and endorsing of Jesus in his ministry, then to support John and say, yeah, John had divine authority from God, then we're giving a platform for Jesus to do all these things. We don't like that. So, okay. Let's not answer that way. Well, but the flip side of that is, if they don't affirm John as a divine messenger from God, then they risk ridicule from the people because it says that the people all said John was a prophet from God. They all believed that he had divine authority to do these things. And guess what? The religious leaders love the approval of people. So they are in a very tricky, no-win situation, no matter how they answer this question. Jesus, for all the ways that they are trying to trap Jesus in his words, Jesus has now set a trap for them. So, with the Jeopardy background music playing, do, 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 they reach their final answer. And their final answer, their informed, enlightened, scholarly opinion is, we don't know. We don't know. Which, by saying that, in many ways, they're undercutting their own authority as Israel's spiritual leaders. But notice that they actually did know the answer. They did know the answer. What they are saying is not a reflection of the conclusion that they came to because 
They knew what the correct answer was. They knew John was who he said he was. But rather than risk ridicule by the people, they protect their pride and cloak it in a we-don't-know answer. So we see here this authority of Jesus' challenge. Jesus basically uh, closes the door on them, right? And that leads us into the second part of the story, the rejection of Jesus illustrated. This is, it comes to us in verse 12, verses of chapter 12 here. Because of their response, verse 33, Jesus says he will not tell them by what authority he does these things. Instead, what he does do for them, what he does tell them, is a story. He tells them something called a parable. And you're like, well, yeah, I've heard of parables. But here's the deal. Where's the last time we've, we've heard of a parable? Mark does not focus a lot on Jesus in his teachings, uh, especially parables. Mark just doesn't do that very often. So when he does, it's pretty significant. And it's there to draw our attention to it. And the parable here is made to illustrate a point. Now, for most parables, not every detail is significantly important uh, or to, to, to have great weight to it. But this one actually has more detail to it that we need to draw out than others do. Uh, and so what does Jesus do? He uses an illustration of something that would have been very common in Israel, which was a vineyard. Uh, vineyards were common all over uh, Israel. Um, and this story here is pretty straightforward. Uh, you have a guy who owns a vineyard, he plants it, he makes it really nice, and it's set up for great success. And what does he do? He, he goes away, and what does he do? He entrusts it to tenants who are in charge of, of raising the, the crops. They're in charge of uh, getting the fruit when it comes in season. Uh, they're in charge of being responsible, and then when the time comes, turning over to the master that which is rightfully his. But what does the story tell us they do? They neglect their responsibility, or uh, not so much neglect, they forsake their responsibility. So when the time comes and the master says, I'm ready to collect what is mine, he sends a servant to go and collect it, and what do they do to the servants? They beat him, took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Thanks, but no thanks. And this sets in motion this constant pattern of the master sending more and more servants to go and collect what is his time and time again. And what do the tenants do? Sometimes they beat him, sometimes they kill him. I mean, these guys are ruthless. This is not the attitude of people who are in charge. And then he thinks to himself, well, okay, maybe all the people I've sent don't have the level of authority that I do. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to send my own son. They will surely respect my son because they recognize that he has the authority on my behalf to collect these things. And what do they do to him? They kill him. And unlike all the others, they don't just kill him. They kill him and then they toss his body outside the vineyard. It doesn't take too much thinking to understand what Jesus is saying here in this parable. The owner and the master of the vineyard is who? 
God. I'm going to ask you a couple of these. You're going to answer them. Okay? God, right? The tenants. Who are the tenants of uh, the vineyard? The Pharisees. The religious leaders of Israel. Those who are entrusted with leading the nation. The servants. Who are the servants that he's sending to the prophet? Uh, to the, uh, oh, I just said it. Uh, to the, to the, the prophets. Yeah, good job. The servants are, are the prophets. This is in many ways telling the whole story of Israel's history in the Old Testament. Time and time again, he's sending prophets. He's sending messengers. Repent. Turn away from your wickedness. Give to God what is rightfully his, which we'll talk about more in a moment. But throughout so much of Israel's history, what do they do to the prophets? They mock them, they ridicule them, they beat them, they kill them. And finally, the culmination of it, it says that he has a son. But notice it doesn't just say that he has any son. He has what type of son? What type of son is it? A beloved son. Does that sound familiar to you? Because it should. Mark chapter 1, verse 11. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Mark chapter 9, verse 7. The voice from heaven calling out in the transfiguration. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And how do they treat Jesus? They treat him no differently. And they kill him. And Jesus then... In response to this parable, in verse 9, he asks a question, translated this way, what do you think the master should do? It's a great question. Usually when you're asking, like if you're doing this for kids, right, you're giving them a scenario, and then you ask them at the end, so what do you think the right answer is? What do you, what do you think that would be right in this situation? What would be fair in this situation? Well, I think if we're honest, if the master, if this is his land and this is how the tenants are treating it, then God is able to return, he's able to clean house, and he's able to make some big changes. That would be what's right. This is like in the sports world where a GM gets fired, a general manager, because things are just not going well. It's time for a change. We're, we're going to have to start over. We're going to get somebody new in here, and we're going to clean things up. It's exactly the mindset here in this parable. And so think about the significance of what Jesus is saying here, and that's primarily found in verses 10 and 11. Jesus actually quotes here from Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23, which is ironic because this is the very same psalm that was being sung last week by the Jews when Jesus was entering into Jerusalem, when they were praying the Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is that exact same psalm, but in a different spot. What does Jesus say? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This verse is actually one of the most common Old Testament passages quoted in the New Testament. And there's so much irony to Jesus using it here because where is all this battle unfolding right now? Where are they? Where are they? Where's this dialogue happening? Temple. It's in the temple. In the temple, Israel's temple, Herod's temple, was known for what? It's beauty. This is a nice temple, and if you don't 
understand that. Just go over to chapter 13, verse 1, and notice that as they came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to Jesus, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Look how glorious this structure is. Look how significant it is. But what looked beautiful on the outside was rejected by Jesus for what was on the inside. Now consider Jesus' use of Psalm 118 here. This stone in this passage here, this stone was rejected by the builders possibly because it was viewed as unattractive or ineffective. This isn't going to work. And yet this very stone becomes the cornerstone of a brand new structure. Though Jesus is rejected or would be rejected, his rejection becomes the foundation of God's new structure, the church. I mean, this is kind of like the original Cinderella story here, right? Where what gets rejected actually then becomes the foundation, the cornerstone, the most important piece of the puzzle. And Psalm 118 says, this is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous. And so what do the leaders do? Verse 12, they tap out. This round's over. This round goes to Jesus. They have nothing to say to it. And so this sets the stage for the continuing unfolding of these, these battles and these traps that we're going to look at over the course of chapter 12. But as we have these last 20 minutes or so this morning, I want to look at some points that you need to maybe take away this morning from this section. First point being this, you will be exhausted if you constantly seek the approval of people above God. This is kind of a side application, but one that is very much on display in this passage with the religious leaders. There is a term used twice in this passage that is incredibly practical for us to consider. And you know what that term is? It's the term fear or to be afraid. Look at verse 32. What shall we say from man? For they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. What about verse 12? And they were seeking to arrest Jesus, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. Seeking the approval of people above God is what it means to fear people. It means you live trying to constantly please people above pleasing God. To seek their acceptance rather than the acceptance that God has already given to you. Ed Welch wrote a great book years ago with an excellent title called When People Are Big and God Is Small. That's what it looks like to live with the fear of people above God. And living to constantly please people, student, it's exhausting. It's an exhausting way to live. And it can control you like a control on a video game. Always directing the way that you live. Years ago, I was listening to a podcast on a church up in the Northwest that 
uh, was highly successful, highly successful. And its, its church leader was very charismatic. He was very uh, brash, but very powerful in his preaching. But one thing was very clear. He, he led people in a very unchrist-like way. And what became clear over time as they were analyzing what, what led to his leadership model and his leadership structural, structure was that in conversations with him, he feared people. He constantly craved the approval of people, which actually led him to seeking to control people. Isn't it interesting that that's so often what was happening with the religious leaders back in this day is that they sought to control people so often out of the result of their own fear that they were being driven by by them. And student, I feel for you at this point. This is certainly an adult issue as well, but you are in a stage of life where you are constantly seeking approval from parents, from peers, from coaches, from the opposite sex, from whoever it may be, right? In your home, in your classroom, on the court, at your job, at the youth group, on social media. You're constantly looking for approval and acceptance. I get that. This is a hard stage of life for that. But I want you to learn today from the example of the religious leaders that if you try to live that way, it will exhaust you. It will exhaust you. That's why Jesus invites you to come to him. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly, and my burden is what? It's light, right? In, in Christ, you already have that approval, that acceptance, and you're not working to try to earn it from him, and you're not trying to earn it from people. You have already earned it through Christ. That's why you need it. So do not live and with an attitude that constantly seeks, how is this making me be viewed by other people? Because if you have Christ, you have enough. And that acceptance is worth more to you than anything else in this world. Secondly, many people know the correct answer about Jesus, but refuse to accept it. The crazy part about the deliberations of the spiritual leaders is that they came to the right answer. They knew what the right answer was, but they intentionally withheld it. They saw Jesus for who he was, but refused to accept it because of what it meant for their life. And you know what that meant? What it meant for their lives if they actually truly gave the right answer was that it meant that they would have to surrender control. It meant they would have to release the control that they wanted over their lives. And as the unfolding parable showed, they would do anything, anything, including kill the Son of God to preserve their authority, their control over their lives. This verse reminds me of what Paul writes about in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, where he says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who, by their unrighteousness, do what? Suppress the truth. Who suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is what? Plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. In other words, God has made it very clear. Men are without excuse. And he says, listen, our unrighteousness is what causes us to suppress, to try to hold down what we know to be true. 
like a jack-in-the-box, right, that keeps coming up. It, it, it naturally wants to rise. And rather than embrace the truth, they suppress the truth all the time, resisting what is obviously true and what God has clearly revealed. This is, student, this is the culmination of pride. This is the culmination of pride. It's the culmination of pride that says, I know what the Bible says. I can see what Je- that Jesus has authority, but I'm still going to do things my way. I can see it. I know what it says. But I don't care. Because I want to do what I want to do. It's foolish. So why do we often do this? Well, because the Bible says that we are bent towards building and securing a kingdom for our own glory. In the parable, the tenants refuse to give the owner what is rightfully his. Translations, they don't surrender control. As the owner, he has the right to such things. But the tenants decide they like being in control more than submitting to the owner. And boy, are we good at this in our own lives. We like to be in control. We like to refuse to give God what is rightfully his. And I've said that a couple times this morning. So you're asking yourself, maybe, well, so what is it? What is rightfully his that he's asking for when he comes? The answer to that, student, what is rightfully his is you. Your life is ultimately his. Don't believe me? Colossians 1. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Dropping down. All things were created through him and what? For him. Everything that was created was not for us, but for him. Translations, we do not exist for ourselves. God did not create us to build and secure our own kingdoms. Life is not about pursuing the American dream and making a legacy for your own sake. It's not about getting the best grades. It's not about being uh, the best on the court. It's not about uh, going to the best colleges, getting the best resumes so you can get the best job and move up the corporate ladder and make the most money and get the best lifestyle and have the best family and get the best retirement. Jesus' very words in Matthew 6.33 are so important for you this morning. Do you know what Jesus says in Matthew 6.33? Seek first what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. He does not say seek first to build and secure your own kingdom. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Fourth, do not scorn the messengers that God sends into your life. Time and time again, the landowner in this parable sent servants to the tenants, representative of Old Testament prophets that God sent to Israel to warn and to call them to give to God what was rightfully his, which was their worship. They were constantly being pulled to worship other deities and other things in their life. And obviously, we're not in the position of Israel or Israel's leaders in this parable. So we have to be careful about some of the ways that we apply this to our lives. But I do think it causes us to pause and draw appropriate correlations, including this one. Many of you, many of you in this room, I would even go so far as to say most of you in this room have been blessed with many godly messengers over the course of your entire lifetime. 
And by that, I mean godly parents, godly Sunday school teachers, godly pastors, godly uh, teachers in your, your, your schools, whatever it may be. I would say do not take lightly what they are constantly putting before you as most precious. They are setting before you, students, the pearl of great price, the thing that is far more valuable than anything else in this world. And so often we kind of walk away indifferent about it. You do well to listen and not scorn what they have to say, which also leads us to consider the fact that God is patient to give us many chances, yet remains committed to justice. God is patient to give us many chances, yet remains fully committed to justice. This whole idea of Jesus rejecting people, not to mention his display of anger that he showed back in uh, chapter 11, verses 15 to 19, when he uh, kind of destroyed the temple area. All, in, all this in judgment makes Jesus kind of seem like this vengeful uh, person who's just ready to snap at people. But I think you need to look more closely at the parable for just a moment. Look at all the servants sent by the master even after they were rejected. He had the right after the very first one to say, okay, that's it, we're done. I'm going to remove this from you. He had the right to. Time after time after time after time, the master sends servants to collect what is rightfully his. In the same way, student, time after time after time, God is sending you messengers to proclaim the glories of the master of the universe. What he wants from you, what he wants from you, student, is your very life. And he is gracious and patient, immensely patient, to grant that to you. I love Paul's testimony of his own life in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. I'm the worst. I know my own heart, and I think to myself, I am the worst, is what he's saying. But verse 16, But I receive mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display what? His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Every single person who is saved, every single person who puts their faith in Jesus Christ, whether it's at age 5 or age, age 50, is a demonstration of God's great patience. God's great grace. Because guess what? God doesn't have to wait that long. At five or at 50, God is patient no matter when somebody comes to faith. But at the same time, student, do not treat his patience like a game or take advantage of it. Because if this parable teaches us anything, he still remains committed to justice. He still remains committed to what is right, and he knows what that is. And there is a time when his patience will be exhausted. It will run out. And my prayer and my hope for all of you is that you have truly trusted in that. And you've not taken advantage of that. But you have truly set your heart and mind to trust in Jesus. Sixth, God can turn the greatest evil into our greatest good. 
This parable of both historical record and prophetic foretelling. Here's what I mean by that. It's historical record in that what Israel's leaders had done in the Old Testament was clear, right? They had rejected time and time again the Old Testament prophets. But this was prophetic as well because notice in this parable, Jesus is foretelling what is coming. It hasn't happened yet. They have not rejected him. They have not formally killed him yet. But he is saying in a veiled picture, this is what's coming. He's going to be killed. He's going to be tossed out of the vineyard. Kind of a reminder that Jesus was crucified and he was killed outside the city limits of Jerusalem. And Jesus warns them that this rejection would result in the vineyard being taken away from them and being given to someone else. From a historical and even a moral perspective, the murder of Jesus is the greatest evil and the greatest injustice of all time. It is. It's the greatest evil and wicked act that has ever happened. And yet, God is the one who takes such evil and turns it into good. In fact, did you notice Psalm 118? This is the Lord's doing. This is the Lord's doing. God is the one who takes evil and turns it into good. By being rejected by Israel and her leaders, the hope of salvation turned to where? To the nations. To the nations. Student, connect the dots this morning. This is what has opened the door for you to be saved. Apart from this rejection... The gospel does not turn to the nations. Thank God that was always his plan, but it was through this evil act that God turns it into your eternal good this morning. The gospel has now come to the Gentiles like you and me, and that also then means that we will answer and we all must answer to Jesus. We all must answer to Jesus. It's almost what Jesus was highlighting for us in Verses 29 to 30, when he was talking to the religious leaders, he says to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Two times, his authority is stressed with emphasis here. I don't answer to you, you answer to me. So student, let me ask you this morning, if Jesus were to ask you this question right now, what would you say? If Jesus were to ask you, do you submit to my authority truly? Am I more worthy than your own kingdom? What might you say? How might you answer that question? For Israel's leaders, the answer was quite clear. They would not bow the knee. My prayer for each of you this morning, as we head into our holiday break, is that Jesus' authority would be viewed as more precious to you than it ever has been before. More precious to you than anything else in your life right now. I want to close with a quote by Sinclair Ferguson. He says, You will not truly confess Jesus as the Christ until you are willing to bow to his authority as your Lord and Savior.
So, student, I pray that that would be true for you here this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, again, the time that we have to meditate on your word. Thank you for your immense grace in warning us and showing us the, the glories of Christ. But this is a somber passage as well, Lord. None of us desire to be rejected by Jesus. At least I, I certainly hope so. And so I pray that this morning that we would accept Jesus for who he is. And what that means is that we would accept his authority over our life. That we would stop trying to build and secure the kingdoms that we so often are bent towards. And that, Lord, we would seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, knowing that you will provide everything that we need for your glory. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.